Luke chapter 3, and I'm reading from verse 1. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Iotrea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And don't begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The ax has been laid to the root of the trees and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What should we do then? The crowd asked. John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none, and anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you're required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. But when John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch because of his marriage to Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the other evil things he'd done, Herod added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. So the second reading, we're in Luke chapter 7, and I'm going to read from verse 18. John's disciples told him about all these things. Calling two of them, he sent them to the Lord to ask, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, are you the one who's to come or should we expect someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, illnesses, and evil spirits, and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, go back and report to John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. After John's messengers left, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury are in palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? 
Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. All the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right because they'd been baptised by John. But the Pharisees and the experts in the law rejected God's purpose for themselves because they'd not been baptised by John. Jesus went on to say, So what then can I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to each other, We played the pipe for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not cry. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and you say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by all her children. This is God's word. Uh, evening, everyone. Uh, hi, my name's Matt. Uh, if you've not met, if you're visiting or, or, or here for the first time, uh, lovely to have you with us. I uh, hope to think you may um, come back again and again and again. And um, it's a good passage, I think, very helpful. Uh, if you're new or just exploring Christian things, a very helpful passage here in uh, Luke 7. Chapter 7 is where we're going to spend our time. So uh, let me pray, and then we'll look at it together. Our great God and Father, we thank you for the, the honesty, uh, the realism of uh, the scriptures. And in this passage here, as we see people wrestling with who Jesus is, all sorts of objections and frustrations, it's so true to our lives, so true to our experience. Pray that we'd understand first what your word says, and then it would shape our lives, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, let me tell you about uh, uh, Ian. Uh, that's not his name, actually, but some, some here know who he is, so let me change his name and call him Ian. Uh, Ian uh, grew up in a believing family, uh, delightful, uh, delightful parents, uh, and so would have said from his earliest memory, he just couldn't remember a day when he didn't follow Jesus and uh, celebrate Jesus. Um, that was his experience. Now, uh, if you met him, if you know him, uh, Ian... Some of us would have found him a bit full on uh, because from a very young age, he sort of was. He's no embarrassment being the sort of guy, Mr. Sandwich Board, judgment is coming. Uh, he, you know, he's that sort of guy. I mean, he's great company, but at the same time, slightly intimidating because uh, he took his faith so seriously. I mean, possessions, uh, clothes, bah, food, bah, veggie. Uh, to save money, to give to the Lord. He just was sort of oh, completely full on. Uh, didn't go to university, just uh, as soon as he was able to, started a church um, from scratch. It grew massively. Uh, loads of people, you know, big song and dance about uh, the church. Loads of people becoming believers. Uh, so all very exciting. Uh, at about age 30 all of a sudden, he started to have pretty big doubts. Pretty unsettling for him. Pretty unsettling for all who followed him. 
uh, hold on a minute, is this all true? Jesus. Is, is he really God? Is he the Messiah? Is he who he claims? I, yeah, I don't know. Pretty unsettling. I wonder if one or two here know that sort of narrative, having grown up in that Christian family. And the reason I tell you about that is because, well, tonight's passage really is, well, it's about doubts. Is Jesus who he claims to be? Is Christianity true? Is it? And the shrewd amongst you would have realized, Ian, it's John the Baptist. It's John the Baptist I'm talking about here. Chapter 7, verse 19 he, John, sent some people to the Lord Jesus to ask, hey, look, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? John the Baptist is saying, yeah, I, I'm not sure anymore. I've got my doubts. The whole passage really is different groups wrestling with who Jesus is. Is he the son of God? Is he the Messiah? Really, the, the, the question from the passage for you and for me is, so what do we think? Are we persuaded of that? Or verse 23, are we going to stumble over him at some point now, later in life? Jesus says, look, some will stumble, but blessed are those who don't stumble on account of me. Stumbling. Now, if you are just joining us, uh, we're spending this term pretty much, apart from next week, slightly different, but in, in Luke chapters 4 to 9, uh, and really the, Jesus' ministry in Nazareth is geographically based, those chapters, but the most significant question really in those chapters is, who is he? Uh, he's defined his own ministry in the words we had read. Uh, 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 no, we didn't actually, but in chapter 4, uh, Isaiah, the words of Isaiah, I'm the spirit of the Lord is on, upon me to proclaim good news to the poor. That's how he's defined his ministry, he's come to set the people free. But who is Jesus and how are you going to respond to him? Really the dominant themes in this section. If you were here last time, uh, who is he? Well, he's the one who can save you from death, give you life after death. That's who he is. It follows straight on this section in chapter 7. So what do you make of him? In our passage tonight, Simple terms, I guess, there are three groups. It doesn't quite work like this, but we're going to break it down like this. There's John who has doubts. There's the bulk of the crowd who are a bit confused. And then there are children who complain about him. Okay? John has doubts. The crowd are confused. And the children, it's kind of everyone, uh, complain about him. So we're just going to work through those three. Who in their different ways are stumbling over who Jesus is. So whether you're, I don't know, early on in your journey of looking at Jesus, or I don't know, here for the first time, second time, I don't know what I think, or actually you've been Christian for years, but have just got to a point in life where you're thinking, really? This is very helpful stuff. 
Let's look at these three then. First, uh, we spend most time in jo- with John, doubting John, or John had doubts about Jesus, particularly about his judgment. Uh, let's look down, verses, uh, chapter 7, verse 18 and 19. These verses are a bit surprising. Look, what do you make of them? John's disciples, uh, chapter 7, verse 18, John's disciples told him about all these things that Jesus had raised people from the dead. Those who are at the point of death, he'd healed them, Okay. Not everyday occurrences, we said last time, certainly hadn't happened for centuries that anyone in Israel had been raised from the dead, so it's not a big deal. So John's followers tell him about this. And when they tell him about these things, raising people from the dead, healing people who are sick, then he says, well, hold on a minute, are you the one to come or should I expect someone else? No, I don't know about you, but I think that's a bit, "Mm." Uh, Jesus done extraordinary miracles. And then John says, I don't know. I'm, I'm not sure about you. Wouldn't you have thought someone who had, who's going around raising people from the dead, you'd be thinking, ka-ching, this could be, this could be the Messiah who's promised. John's saying, oh, yeah, I don't know. Why? Well, that's why we have read chapter 3. I won't turn back to it now, but if, if you picked up, what was John preaching? We're told he was preaching a message of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, and that when the Messiah came, he'd do two things. He would baptize his believers with the Holy Spirit. That is, he'd give them the power to change those who did repent. Those who didn't, Jesus would judge. Two things. He'd equip those who repented for all they'd done wrong, said sorry, and those who didn't, he would judge. John says, hmm, I see the nice things you're doing for people. I see you equipping your believers. I see you doing part one. Where is judgment? Because to be honest with you, I I spent years telling people that when the Messiah came, he'd judge the wicked for all they did wrong. I'm now in prison. I have been for quite some time in prison because of wicked Herod. So to be honest, Jesus, I know you're healing individuals and saving individuals. What about justice for the nation? How about that? Because I don't see that. And personally, well, personally, life's a bit disappointing. My whole adult career, as you will, has been saying, when the Messiah comes, everything's going to be sorted out. There'll be justice in the land. You're here, and I'm in prison. It's all a bit disappointing. My life is disappointing. You are disappointing. I think there's someone greater than you. You weren't the real Messiah, were you? Do you see? Where's judgment is John's issue. Where has that gone? Now, you've got to say, John the Baptist is having doubts. First thing we're told that about John is his mum meets Jesus' mum, and John does a somersault in the womb and goes, yay! I mean, he's been a believer before he was born. Jesus comes along, and John says the first thing is, oh, look, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the one we've been waiting for. The whole of John's life, he's been a believer. I mean, you couldn't have had someone who was more full-on as a believer in Jesus than John. And he's now saying, I don't know. I don't know. 
doubts are not abnormal. You've been a Christian for years, and all of a sudden you think, yeah, I don't know. That's not abnormal. You see John here wrestling. I, I don't know. I've been so full on for you, Jesus, and now I, I wonder. See, doubts are not abnormal in the Christian life. The question is, what are you going to do with them? John goes to Jesus with his doubts. So question, verse 19, uh, are you the one who is to come, or shall we expect, or should we expect someone else? Well, when the men come to Jesus, they are, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? That's the question, is why we get it twice. The answer is not perhaps super obvious. At that time, verse 21, Jesus had cured many who had diseases, illnesses, evil spirits. He gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, go back and report to John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed are those who don't stumble over me. What do you think of that as an answer? Are you the promised Messiah? Go and tell John what I've done. All of those things he's quoting are from different parts of Isaiah. Isaiah 35 is a big chunk of them. Isaiah 29, Isaiah 61. Look at what I'm doing, John. I am doing the things that Isaiah promised I would. And essentially, John, it is, it's forgiveness now. It's healing now. It's salvation now. Judgment will come later. but I am who you're expecting. But it's forgiveness now. It's salvation now. It's freedom from sin now. Well, you have to wait for perfect justice to come. You may be sat here thinking, look, I, I do occasionally have doubts as a Christian, or I'm not yet persuaded and I do have lots of questions. Mine are, my question is not, when is judgment going to come? Can there be more judgment upon the world? That's not my thing. Okay, that may not be your issue. Although I think it is more common than people think. Some people do object to, okay, this, this Jesus who saves individuals, what about structures in the world? What about global justice? Well, that's perhaps a more common thing. Okay, but maybe that's not your issue. But do observe from John here. Doubts are never purely intellectual. There's always more going on than that. So John did have a rational element to his doubt. Hold on, the, the, the prophets, and I had been preaching, because I read the prophets, salvation, forgiveness of sins, and justice, judgment. And I don't see the latter. So are you, you're only doing half of what I was expecting you to do. There's a rational element to that. But of course, alongside that is, I'm in prison because of Herod. Can you judge him, please? Can there be justice upon the wicked, please? There is a sort of personal disappointment involved in the doubts. He's not dispassionately observing the work of Jesus like a BBC journalist, whatever, but um, a journalist. Um, He's involved. 
He's suffering. That's part of it. So these doubts, they're rational, yeah, but they're personal as well. And you just, just, you may not like it. Some people might be annoyed with me for saying it, and just come and talk to me afterwards. But if you have doubts about the Christian faith, either from inside as a believer or from outside, if I can use that language, as someone who's just thinking it through, it's never purely rational. This is not an exhaustive list, but let me chuck out five M's. That um, all, and one of these is normally around when people are having doubts, as well as the sort of scientific or rational or whatever objection it may be. Here are five M's. Um, they're a bit twee. That's why they all begin with M. So sorry, it's a bit forced. Uh, number one, uh, be just being in a minority. I don't. I'm not sure I want to be a Christian when the majority of people I know are not. It's most acute. I'm not sure I can be a Christian when the rest of my family are not. I just don't want to be in the minority. Now just be aware that that's a sociological pressure. Uh, I'm not up with the latest fashions, you may observe. Uh, but uh, for the last few years, uh, even I can, uh, can clock that skinny jeans uh, are what you're meant to wear. Uh, some of you carried off well, the rest of us do not, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, everyone wears skinny jeans. That's what you do. Have you seen anyone recently in massive bell-bottom flare jeans? Not unless it's fancy dress. Let me tell you, within a decade, you will not be seen dead in skinny jeans. And flares will be back in fashion. Because that's what happens. In my teens into early 20s, the bottom of my trousers was twice the size of my waist. It's not that I was a strange body shape. Everyone was the same. And when the fashion is skinny jeans, you just do it. You don't want to stand out. And when the fashion is flares, and if you're caught in skinny jeans, you'll be viewed as a weirdo. No one wants to be the minority. There's a sociological pressure. And for some, that's just all it is. I'm not sure. My doubts are all of a sudden, I've gone from some context where I, I knew lots of Christians. Now I feel exposed and I don't like it as well as there being some rational element. Just being in a minority with one, let me pick up the pace, this will take too long. Uh, mishap will be another. Something's gone wrong. I've been sacked. I've had an accident. I've got a serious illness. Mishap. I'm in prison, John the Baptist. And you think, really? Is this what the Christian life is like? Jesus, you're disappointing. I'm not sure anymore. Uh, my being a minority, uh, mishap happening. Medical is another reason sometimes. As I'm, look, I'm exhausted, I'm run down, I'm burnt out. Yeah, you're clinically depressed and you have doubts. Sometimes when you have doubts in the Christian faith, the most usual thing is go on holiday. Oh, actually, I've had lots of sleep. I feel much better now. I don't know what I was thinking about. Sometimes it's as simple as that. Not always. I'm not, not so, so, don't be annoyed with me. Um, minority, mishap, medical, moral is a common one. Uh, I want to have an extramarital affair. I want to sleep with my boyfriend, sleep with my girlfriend. I know Jesus says don't do it, but I really want to. Is he really true? I want out of my marriage. I hate my marriage. So that this is obviously a scenario. Um, <laughs> I'm just conscious there are some nasty tech people who rip out sentences from my sermons <laughs> and play them out of context. You know who you are. 
don't do it with that one. Um, someone, someone might say, I hate my marriage. I want out of my marriage. Jesus says I can't. Is he real? Is he true? Moral reasons. Uh, being a minority, a mishap, medical, moral. Moving, often that's quite a common one. You move from overseas to the UK, and all of a sudden, your family and support structures and friendships who are Christians, they're not there, and you're sort of, whoa, uh, there's a bit of movement in my life. Could you, could you just be moving to London for university or from university? All of a sudden, oh, who, who are my friends? And, oh, look at this guy. The Christian faith hasn't changed. The reason you've always been a Christian hasn't changed. Your circumstances have. But don't get the two confused. Whenever anyone who is a Christian has doubts, there's a rational element. I'm not sure how this all fits together. Of course, you need to work that through. But there's always something else going on in your life. If you're not yet a Christian, you think, well, I'm not sure if I think this is true. Yeah, you've got to make up a decision whether you think the Christian faith is true. It is. Uh, you've got to make your mind up on that. But be aware, there's other, always other issues going on. Do I want to be part of this gang? It's always more than just the thoughts. That's not an exhaustive list. But Jesus would say, look, don't stumble. Don't stumble over me. Just because at the moment your life doesn't fit and who I am doesn't fit your expectations of me. Just go back to the scriptures. Make sure you understand them rightly. John had doubts. John had doubts about Jesus. Okay, let's go faster uh, for these other two. Uh, secondly, then, the crowd. The crowd was confused uh, about greatness. The crowd was confused about greatness. Uh, verse 24, Jesus turns to the gathered crowd then, and he's asking, why did you go out? Verse 24, John's messages go, and they take their message back. Jesus turns to the rest of the crowd and says, now, John... The Baptist. Just, let me just talk you through. What were you doing there? Why did you go out into the wilderness to see? It was him, wasn't it? I mean, you didn't go out to see a reed swayed by the wind. I mean, no one goes into the desert to, to, to spend hours going, oh, look, look at the bit of grass going back and forth. You know what? You, that's not why you went out into the wilderness. That would be boring. Or um, verse 25, if not, what did you go out to see? Did you go out to see a man dressed in fine clothes? No, John wore camel's cloth and ate locusts and honey. He, was, he wore terrible clothes. Um, you want to see nice clothes, go to Mayfair. Um, oh, no, no, go to, go to those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury, they're in palaces. Let me just remind you, why did you go out to see him? You knew he was a prophet, verse 26. You knew there was something going on in John's ministry that was, he captivated you. He's actually more than a prophet, more than just any old prophet. Verse 27, this is the one about whom it was written in the book of Malachi. 450 years earlier, God said through Malachi, I will send my messenger ahead of you who, who will prepare your way before you. Okay. And then verse 28, I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Now, that's quite a statement. Among those born of women, just work that through logically, that's everyone. Okay. John the Baptist is the greatest person ever born, says Jesus. 
to this point in history. Wow. Maybe greater than anyone in the Bible, Moses, Elijah, whoever you want to name. It's the greatest man who's ever lived. And yet, verse 28, the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Huh? So anyone here who's a Christian is greater than John, who was the greatest man who'd ever lived up to this point in history. Wow. You're greater than... I don't know, the greats of history. Who do you remember? Aristotle, Plato, Pythagoras, must have done him at school. He had a great theorem, do you remember it? No. Um, you're greater than Alexander the Great. He was even called the Great. You're greater than all of them. Why? John's job was to testify about Jesus before he came. Anyone who's now in the kingdom of God can testify about Jesus after he's come. We know more than John did. We know more about his life, his death for sins, his resurrection to new life. We know more. Therefore, you can say more about Jesus. The only reason anyone now is, who's a believer is greater than John the Baptist is because Jesus is the turning point. Of, he's the hinge of the whole of history. So if you believe in him after his coming, you know so much. The only reason we are great is because Jesus is the greatest figure of history and we know about him. It is quite a privilege. You know this, says Jesus, to the people there. You, you knew there was something special. That's why you responded. Well, some of you did, verse 29. All the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right. They'd been baptized by John. Yeah, we knew there was something about John. Not the Pharisees and the experts in the law. We'll come back to them. Verse 30, they, they didn't want a, a repentance for forgiveness. Jesus is saying to them, you knew there was something about John, but you don't get how important I am. You don't see that I'm the hinge of the whole of history. If you believe in me, you're greater than John because you can talk about me. Which tangentially does just mean, of course, in, in God's hall of fame, what does greatness look like? It's testifying about Jesus. Anyone can do that. Do that tomorrow. The crowd, the crowd are confused about greatness. The children then, finally then, uh, last thing, the children. The children complain about wrath and grace. What does that mean? Verse 31. Jesus went on to say, um, to what then shall I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to each other. We played the pipe for you and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge and you didn't cry. He's talking about children's games. The sort of equivalent might be in a toddler or, you know, preschool playground or, or, or a junior infant school playground and one kid says who wants to play doctors and nurses and all the kids go nah too soppy apologies to the doctors and nurses the uh another kid goes who wants to play cops and robbers no too violent oh what do you want to play it's that sort of thing he's talking about uh we played the pipe for you and you did not dance that's playing at weddings. That's when you have a, white, uh, a pipe and, and dances. Saying a dirge and you didn't cry. That's funerals. You're like children playing games. Should we pretend it's at a wedding? No. 
That's too exciting, too, too upbeat. Should we pretend it's a funeral? No, that's too negative. And he goes on to explain it. Verse 33, John the Baptist came, neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say, well, he's got a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, you say, oh, he's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. You don't like it anyway. Do you see what he's saying? John came and said, everyone needs to repent. No one is right before God. Everyone needs to repent and say sorry to God for how they've lived their lives. And you said, too gloomy. Well, then Jesus comes along and says, there's forgiveness available for anyone. The worst of sinners, tax collectors, culturally the worst. And you say, well, that's too generous. You just complain. Oh, too solemn, too serious, too negative, oh, too positive. You just complain. Your problem is essentially, you don't want anyone else to play the tune. You want to be in charge. They're saying, and many people would say the same today. I, I, I don't want a God who judges. And I don't want a God who says forgiveness is available to anyone. What I want is a, is a God who's, too, who's small and then overlooks anything I do wrong. And I want a salvation that's small. I, I want to be able to earn it. I want God to say, you're a nice person. You can go to heaven. You see, I guess it gets expressed a bit like this. Well, I, I, I don't like this idea of God judging everyone. Oh, yeah, I, I, want, I want the wicked people to be judged. I want the ISIS leader, al-Baghdadi, to be judged. Of course I do. I want liars to be judged. Well, hold on a minute. I, I want politicians who lie to be judged, not me when I lie. I don't, I, I don't want that. Yeah, I want people who, who have wicked thoughts about me. I want people to have wicked thoughts. They should be punished in some way, but, but not me. I don't think I deserve any form of judgment. Well, that's the Pharisees and the experts in the law. Earlier in the passage, verse 30, we, we, we don't need to say sorry for anything. We don't need to say, I repent, I've done anything wrong. Don't need to do it. Or on the other hand, people say, look, I don't want God who's really generous. Well, anyone can be forgiven. Well, sorry, the, the only way you get to heaven is not through living a nice life. It's, it's by saying, Jesus has died for me. What? So even Robert Mugabe, if he died, said that on his deathbed, I trust that Jesus died in my place and takes punishment for my sins. Even Robert Mugabe can go to heaven. Well, he didn't. But had he done so? Yes. Well, I don't like a God who forgives anyone who, who trusts in him then there's no hope for you because the only way you can go to heaven is if you say, I'm sorry for what I've done wrong, but I trust in Jesus. People don't like a God who judges and people don't like a God who's generous because we want to be in control ourselves. Or to put it in another daft way, uh, you go out on a Saturday night and you're having a good night out uh, with a bunch of mates in Soho, let's say, and um, you had a couple of drinks and you go, uh, you've, gone, you've gone for a bit of dancing and you think, why am I dancing in the tourist capital? I don't know. But anyway, the tourist centre, that's what I'm doing for some reason. Uh, but you found a nice cool club and it's, it's, it's fun, it's great, you're having a good time. And then um, the owner comes up to you at the nightclub and says, you're having a good time? Yeah, having a great time. It's all a little bit embarrassing, but... Um, 
you stink of BO. You just stink. No, no, it's fine, it's fine. No, no, no. I, no. no, seriously, it's minging. I mean, I'm just, you know, it's... But look, I don't want to embarrass you too much. Look, I, I've got a suite in the boutique hotel next door. You, you and your mates can go and have showers and then look, use the bar and use the drink and order anything on my room bill if you want. But you stink. But the offer's there. Now, how do you feel about that? Well, no one likes to be told they stink and be home. But if it's true, and the offer is, well, you can have an upgrade on this nightclub and go next door to my crazy suite in this boutique hotel and drink as much as you like and, you know, chill out in the pool and the jacuzzi and, you know, well, it's quite a nice offer. And look, it's a math illustration. But in a sense, Jesus says, morally, you stink. But I'll sort it all out for you. And you can have better than what you've got at the moment. But you have got to acknowledge you have a problem and you need me to fix it. And the people here say, well, I don't like it. I don't like it. Here in chapter 7, I think Jesus is saying, look, can we be honest? What do you make of me? And can you be honest with yourselves about the reasons? If you haven't trusted in me, if you're having doubts about me, can you just be honest with yourselves about that? What is causing your doubts? Is it really what the scriptures say or is it circumstances, experiences in life? You're, you're not unwilling to trust me? You say, oh, judgment's not very good. Oh, forgiveness for everyone, that's not very good. What, actually, what's your problem? Is it that you just don't want to be in control? So at the end of this, Jesus says, look, here are people wrestling with who I am. Even John the Baptist is wrestling with who I am. You can be wrestling with who Jesus is as a Christian with doubts. All the unbelievers are still working out what you make of it. But Jesus says, just be honest. What is causing you to stumble? Because, actually, if you're honest and realize, no, no, I, I have great reasons to trust in Jesus. Well, blessed is the one who doesn't stumble. You have the joys of the Christian life, eternity to look forward to. So Jesus would say, be honest. What's causing you to stumble? Come back and trust in me. Let me lead us in prayer together. Father, we want to thank you again for honesty, for, for realism in the scriptures. Even John the Baptist, the one who went ahead of Jesus, proclaimed who he was, proclaimed what he would do, declared him the Lamb of God who take away the sins of the world. Even John, we see him there in prison going, I'm not sure. But Father, I, I, I don't know quite where everyone's at, of course, in this room. For those who are Christians but wrestling, struggling, doubting, pray they become clear what, why be able to be honest about their intellectual, their rational doubts, and also the circumstances of life. 
Uh, for those of us who are still working it out, I don't know yet if I want to put my faith in Jesus. Again, would there be honesty in our hearts about what's the reason? We don't want to be childish rejecting Jesus just because he doesn't do things our way. Father, would we not stumble over him, but be blessed in trusting him, we ask. Amen.